Good morning and a warm welcome to you all to Ladywell Baptist Church and to our service of worship at the beginning of this new week. It's great to be together and to worship the Lord together to um, prepare ourselves for what we will face in this coming week, but also to to reset, as it were, the direction that we're facing, to, to realign ourselves with God and to focus on him and make that our pattern for the coming uh, seven days and all that that will hold for each one of us. I want to welcome you um, if you're a member and a regular attender of Ladywell Baptist Church, but particularly I want to welcome you if you have no real connection with our church here in Livingston. Perhaps you've just stumbled across our YouTube channel or our Facebook page, or maybe you have some connection in years gone by with the church and you've just dropped in to see uh, how things are going and what's going on. And so I want to welcome you and trust that you will feel uh, part of our time together, albeit worshipping in our own separate homes. And I I want to, to pray just in a short moment that you'll be challenged and encouraged in our time of worship this morning as we come around God's word and continue our series in Genesis, as we look at who we are as a people, as a species, and where we are going. And particularly, this is relevant in light of all that we're facing at the moment. We begin our time of worship this morning by hearing these words from Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant. Children of Jacob, his chosen ones. There's a great encouragement in the opening verses of this psalm to seek the Lord, to come and to worship him, to ask him to to meet with us, to, to inform us and shape us, to transform our lives, to realign them with the direction he would have us go and not live just any way that we fancy. And I want to challenge you as well as encourage you this morning that that will be the focus of our our worship, to be transformed, to seek the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you um, have no real church connection, to ask genuinely that God would uh, come draw you in close to himself, would reveal himself to you, would would shape you, would inform your thinking, so that you are able to, to face these days in which we live, these most uncertain times that have made us all, I think, feel very inadequate very incapable of dealing with everything that life throws at us with all of the fear and the frustration and the anxiety that coronavirus and the lockdown uh, has brought to each one of us. I'm going to pray to begin our time of worship and I would encourage you uh, to pray with me. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word that we have just read, you encourage us to come to you and to seek you to genuinely ask that you would meet with us, that you would, Lord, draw us close to yourself, that you would provide us with comfort and with strength. Lord, you would challenge us and show us those areas of our lives that aren't right and need to be addressed. Lord, that you would build us up and make us able to face the days in which we live with confidence and with certainty. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless each one of us as we gather for worship in our own homes. 
Lord God, we pray for all those members of our church who are struggling at this time with feelings of loneliness and frustration. Lord, those who are sick, Lord, those who uh, are connected to our church who have coronavirus, Lord God, we pray that your hand would be upon each one of us. And Lord, you would give us the strength we need for each day. Lord God, we pray that as we gather for worship in this time, that you would prepare us to face this coming week. Lord, we pray that not just for the members of our church, but for anyone watching this service, listening to this service, whether they're connected to this church or any church. Father God, we thank you that you would have us come and know you and be shaped and transformed by you. And so we simply and humbly ask that you would meet with us in our time together today. And we ask it all in our Saviour's precious name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's reading will be from Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with your money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man of a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them, as God told him. 
Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from, his, from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Let's pray together for our church and for our world. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement and the challenge that it is to each one of us. And Lord, we do pray that you would inform us and help us to understand it as we seek to make sense of our lives and the world in which we live. Lord God, we pray for uh, our service of worship this morning. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified by our gathering for all that we meet in our separate homes. Lord, we pray for the church here in Ladywell and ask that you would bless our congregation scattered as they are across this area of West Lothian. Heavenly Father, we thank you for one another and we confess that we are all the more frustrated as each week goes by that we can't be together as we would wish. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us patience and an ability to endure. Lord, that we would come out of this period of lockdown strengthened and, Lord, we would appreciate that the church fellowship we have here so much more. We pray, Lord, for a hunger and a thirst for your word and for doing your will each week. But, Lord, we pray as well that we would have a real hunger and thirst for gathering together. Lord God, we thank you for the work this church does in this part of the world. And we pray for the various groups that are still ongoing each week. Lord, we thank you for our drop-in cafe and our prayer meetings that are happening online and ask that you would use them to strengthen this fellowship and for those who gather from outside of this fellowship, may you build us up and Lord, may we bear one another's burdens each week as we help each other get through day by day so that we may emerge at the end of this time strengthened and better equipped as a Christian people. Lord God, we pray as well for uh, our youth fellowship and for their meetings each week online and for the, uh, the videos that they post on YouTube and on Facebook. We thank you so much for their ongoing work, seeking to encourage and build up our young people. And we pray for our young people, many of whom are facing a real sense of anxiety and worry over the future when exams uh, have been cancelled. Uh, and that may mean uh, a slightly different coming 12 months than they had anticipated if the grades they get aren't quite the ones they thought they would come the end of a normal period of exams. Lord, we pray for the schools and for teachers, for universities, and Lord, for admission departments as they try and, and figure out how best to deal with this situation. And we pray, Lord, that there would be a sense of uh, fairness and a desire to do what is best for our young people for our school pupils and students. Lord, we pray as well for those who are expecting to enter the workforce over this coming, uh, this coming year and pray that you would, Lord, build up those individuals and encourage them. This is a, a very difficult time, especially for those just seeking work. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless them with a knowledge of your presence and that they would, with patience, look to the future with hope. Lord, I pray as well for those who are out of work as a result of the lockdown. We read every week in the papers about companies laying off thousands of staff. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with those who are laid off. 
It can be such a worrying time, wondering how the mortgage will be paid or how the bills will be paid or how uh, the family will be fed. And so, Lord, we pray that you would not only bless these uh, people who are struggling with a knowledge of your presence, you would enable neighbors, family and friends, Lord, that you would enable our church to bless them where we are able to make this time that little bit easier, to bear something of their burden. Lord, we thank you for the community fridge that we have in the church each week and the work that they do tirelessly seeking to provide food for those who need it most. And Lord, we pray that you would bless our volunteers, that you would keep them safe. We thank you so much for those who are working hard throughout the week to pick up food and and to drop it off, to deliver food to those who are simply not able to get out. And Lord, to be a friendly face to those who come feeling perhaps frustration or anger or even shame that they have to come and ask for free food. Lord, I thank you that we have a wonderful group of volunteers seeking uh, to maintain the dignity of those people who come, but Lord, to bless them in a way where they have the most need. Lord God, we ask that you would meet the needs of this community through churches like ours. Father, we thank you. This is the work of your kingdom to go and to share the good news of the gospel that Christ has come to be our perfect savior. And so, Lord, we do that by demonstrating his love towards us through generosity, through caring, through simply listening to those who just want to talk to someone about their fears and their frustrations. And Lord God, we do it by sharing the faith that we have, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that we as Christians have, that we recognize our world does not share. Heavenly Father, we pray that your kingdom would grow in Ladywell and in Livingston, that people would come and hear this hope, this good news, and would be transformed. And in being transformed, Lord, we'd be able to worship you and tell others of your glory in salvation also. Lord, we pray for not just uh, the community of Ladywell, but for our nation. And we continue to ask for protection for uh, Nicola Sturgeon and for the government in Holyrood. Lord, we ask that you would give them wisdom and strength to make good decisions, albeit difficult ones, for the betterment of our nation and not simply for uh, political position or career. Lord, I pray the same for uh, Boris Johnson and the government in Westminster. And we thank you that both of these two governments are working very hard to ensure that we are protected, Lord, from this virus, but also that our nation is able to endure economically and socially. And so we pray that you would give them both wisdom. You would strengthen them, keep them safe. And Lord, ultimately, that you would present to them the gospel, Lord, that they would be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great goodness towards us this morning. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you in light of all that will come this week that we simply are not aware of yet, but you already know of. Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength to endure, that you would give us a desire to worship you and to grow in grace each and every day, that we might serve others and bless those around us. Lord God, we ask that you would meet with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been interesting to see over the last uh, two and a half months of lockdown uh, a rather odd uh, situation occurring where um, around one in four adults in the UK have connected in uh, online to a church service. Now, this is 
quite a, a change from the usual situation where over the last number of decades we've seen a decline in church attendance, not a massive rise, and yet here we are and uh, we have this huge surge in people interested in spiritual things, looking for answers, looking for a place, for a community, for a means of making a connection. Uh, and so we find that church attendance is temporarily at least on the rise. I think the real reason that church has declined over the last number of decades is actually found not just within the church, but in a number of other organizations, whether it's uniformed organizations or places like golf clubs or charities, that people simply don't commit to things anymore in the way that they used to. You don't commit to a local organization and stay involved in that over the course of your whole life. People don't commit to their work in the sense that maybe four or five years after getting a job, we move on somewhere else. A job for life is, um, is not something that we talk about anymore in this country. It, it covers the whole of society. We all seem to be geared up this way. And as we come to this passage in Genesis 16 and 17 this morning, it addresses this subject of commitment, of how we commit not to an organization as such, but how we commit to God. If we're in a, a place where society says we don't commit to anything for any length of time anymore, what does that mean for our relationship with God? Perhaps you're a Christian, and this is something you would say this has transformed your life. It's changed you from the way that you were. But if we take society's views of commitment, is your commitment to Christ and to the Christian faith and to the church a temporary thing? That's certainly something we do see. It's a big challenge to us all as Christians today to ask that question. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're wondering what on earth life and faith is all about, especially in light of coronavirus. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time thinking over that very issue and asking that question, what is it to commit to God, to commit to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? What does that mean? How do we do it? And what does that look like in our lives? It's something that's addressed all throughout the Bible, and it's incredibly important that we do address this question as it defines our lives one way or the other. And in our passage this morning, we come to this point in Abraham's life where he is um, old. He is expecting the promises of God to be worked out, but he has reached old age. He doesn't know how God will deliver a son and an heir to him. And he is asking all sorts of questions. He's seeking all sorts of answers. And what we find is he and his wife, Sarah, have come to uh, some kind of agreement. They have an idea. They know that God has promised that they will be a great nation, that a great nation will come from their uh, marriage, from their family. They know that there will be many blessings that come as a result of that, that will be delivered in part to Abraham and Sarah, but to their uh, family, to their children and their children's children and so on. And so they know that they must have a son, but they are past the age of having children. So Sarah does what was relatively common in the ancient world. She takes her maidservant, Hagar, and presents her to Abraham and invites Abraham to have a child with Hagar. They will then adopt that child as their own son and heir and continue on the family line. Again, this, this was not um, unusual or out with um, the experience of many families in the ancient world who had remained uh, childless. And so this is what happens. 
Sarah, um, initially in developing this idea, doesn't really think it through. And what we find is she becomes jealous. She becomes frustrated and worried that Hagar is going to supplant her as Abraham's wife and take her place in his affections because she's been able to provide Abraham with a son and an heir, whereas Sarah hasn't. And so we find that she um, reacts badly to the situation and deals harshly with Hagar to the point where Hagar, in fear of her life and the life of her son, flees the household and goes out into the wilderness. And here we find in this sorry story, as Abraham and Sarah try and figure out how to make God's plans work, we begin to understand our place before God and how our commitment to God works. We find our commitment to God, just as Abraham and Sarah's does, is bound up in the promises of God. As we rely on God's promises, so our commitment to God will develop. And in this passage, in those first six verses where the the stage is set for this sad tale of, uh, of strife and worry and anxiety and frustration, we find that God's promises begin to reveal our weaknesses. And we see this in Abraham and Sarah's lives and in the life of Hagar as well as uh, our own. We see Abraham and Sarah trying to figure out how to make God's promises work and they make a mess of it. They're not relying on God to see the situation through. They're relying on their own strength and ingenuity. We find that in revealing the weakness of this plan, God begins to deal with Abraham and Sarah such that he will draw them around and have them facing ultimately in the right direction for all they're going the wrong way at the moment. We find also with Hagar, she is thrown into this situation, a situation not of her own making, and her weakness is immediately revealed. She is powerless to do anything about her circumstance apart from run away. And we find in our own situation, in our own lives, we are powerless to address the sin in our own lives. We have this frustration with the way that we let ourselves down and let others down, the way we hurt ourselves and hurt others. And no matter how many good things we do, no matter how many good things we try, we can never balance the scales, as it were. We can never do more good things than bad. We always let ourselves down. We can never cause more good than harm. We can ultimately never address the problems in our lives in a permanent way. We always slip back into the old bad habits and uh, bad ways that we've had before. We are powerless to address this problem. And as we begin to consider God's promises, so those weaknesses are revealed. God promises to transform us as individuals, to deal with our problem of sin, to pay its penalty so that we're made right with him and can live with and love him and serve him, which will be satisfying and fulfilling every day of our lives. But he also addresses the ongoing daily struggle with sin we have and slowly over time transforms us more and more into the kind of people we would desire to be and the kind of people that he desires us to be. But our awareness of our weakness is only made known as we consider those promises, those commitments God makes. And so it is with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. 
In knowing our weakness, we find in verse 7 through to 12, we find that we are led to greater dependence. Hagar runs out into the wilderness and finds a stream and simply sits by it wondering what on earth she's going to do. And as an angel of the Lord, who's a sort of physical representative of God, comes and meets with her, she hears again the promises of God, the faithfulness of God that he won't leave her. She has... um, become incorporated into Abraham's family and as such she will receive some of those blessings, promises that God has delivered to Abraham's household. So will her son and God will stand by her for all that she's in a forlorn and almost impossible situation. And so she begins to depend upon God. God calls on her to return back home to this nightmare of a situation. And she goes, amazingly, and she casts herself on the mercy of Sarah and Abraham, despite the fact she has no confidence she will receive it. But she trusts in God as her weakness is revealed. And then we find the greater dependence that we have upon God in light of our weakness leads to greater faithfulness to God, greater commitment to God as we see how he begins to work in our lives. In verses 13 through to 16, we find uh, after God has uh, committed to her that he will stand by her and her son. She says that you are a God who sees, you are a God who understands is really what she means. He, he sees right through her. He understands her circumstances, her fears, her situation, and he addresses them directly. And so she completely depends upon the faithfulness of God and she in faithfulness returns back home. And so it is uh, with us when we recognize our weakness and our need to depend upon Christ. We would see that there is only one who can save us. It's God himself, somebody outside of us, someone bigger and greater and more capable than we are. God comes in Jesus and dies for our sins, pays for them completely and begins that work of transformation in our lives if we call upon him to save us. And it's difficult to see that sometimes, isn't it? And yet, as we look back over those years we've been Christians, we can see change and development and growth. And as we reckon on our weakness and we see the success that God has in dealing with us, so we grow in our dependence upon him. And as we grow in our dependence upon him, so we see his ongoing faithfulness to us, that though we go on struggling with sin, he never leaves or forsakes us. He constantly calls us back to him. And so we become accustomed to coming to him, to being in his presence, to addressing our sins quickly and having them dealt with so that right relationship might be restored between us and him. So that we might be a blessing to others and encourage our fellow um, brothers and sisters within the church or with those around us in the community that we might bless through physical means or through sharing of the gospel that they might hear the good news that we've received as a Christian people. And all of this comes as we grow in our relationship with God through the, the promise of God revealing our weakness, the, the knowing of our weakness leading to our greater dependence on him and that greater dependence leading to our increasing trust and faithfulness on God. Galatians 3, the apostle Paul tells us that we are the recipients of those promises delivered to Abraham through Christ. Christ is the child who would ultimately come and fulfill all of those promises by dying on the cross for our sins. 
And as we are forgiven for our sins through Christ, as we call upon him for forgiveness, we are incorporated, adopted into Abraham's family and so become heirs of these promises. And as we consider them ourselves and the fulfillment of these promises in our lives, so we grow in our knowledge of Christ and in the grace that he extends towards us. And so we are able to worship God more faithfully, that we are able to grow as disciples uh, more capably, and we are able to witness to Christ more clearly as we understand far better the faith that we have, the goodness of our God, the amazing transformation that he brings to sinners like you and like me. And in all of this, we find our commitment to Christ grows and deepens as we consider his promises to us and his faithfulness in delivering these promises. We thought last week, didn't we, about how he goes to such extreme lengths to save us. He sends his own son to die on a cross that we might be adopted into his family. And if God will go to those lengths to save us, then he will stop at nothing to see us continue in our faith and grow and mature. Everything about our lives as Christian people, in fact, everything about our lives as humans, only really makes sense if we root ourselves in the promises of God and trust that he will do as he says he will. And that is true of our commitment. As we commit to him, So he will lead us on. Now we're only going to truly commit to Christ and his church if we rely upon those promises. And here's the great problem for us. Maybe you, like me, have grown up in church all the the course of your life. It's just a thing that you do. It would seem strange not to go to church. And it's one of the reasons that the lockdown is so hard for us as Christians. It's what we do. We gather together to worship God and, and so on. And yet the big problem is... Just doing it because we've already done it isn't a good enough reason to keep doing it. A habit is not something that Christ calls us to. He calls us to commitment, to a discipline, if I can put it that way, not simply to a passive habit. As we seek to commit to the church, if it if it's simply a habit, then what we'll find is as difficulty comes into our lives, we'll be inclined to give up on whether it's church or or following in in the way that Christ would have us go. We'll, We'll go a different way, try a different route to satisfy us or to deal with this problem. If church life becomes difficult for whatever reason, the temptation will be that we'll go somewhere else or we'll just stop going to church altogether because it's about my taste or it's about my desire or about what satisfies or fulfills me and it's not about my commitment to Christ and his people. Because a commitment endures even when the going is tough. In fact, especially when the going is tough. A habit will simply die away the harder and harder things get. And so it it comes to us to ask the question, not just how do we develop a commitment to Christ, but how do we express our commitment to him? How do we actually work this out? practically day to day. And we find in chapter 17 that our commitment to Christ is expressed through our obedience. 
Now, this is an interesting point because we see so much in Abraham and Sarah's life where obedience is a bit of a questionable thing. They're striving to work out the promises of God, but they do it again and again in their own strength. They don't seek to follow in the way that God has revealed to them. And I totally understand that. It's something that I constantly do, and it's a reason why I get so frustrated with myself, and I'm sure you recognize that in your own lives. We constantly seek to to do things in our own way, in our own strength, by our own wisdom, and wonder all too often why we fail and we fall back into sin, or we frustrate um, ourselves or our family or our friends, or we, we get things wrong. And all too often, it's because we've gone our own way on something instead of following in God's way. And we find here in chapter 17, God dealing with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar in a very interesting way. He, he does a couple of things. Abraham and Sarah have their names changed. Their names are Abram and Sarai, and they're changed to Abraham and Sarah. And part of what God is doing here is changing their identity. Every time we find God changing someone's name in Scripture, they're changing their identity. They are redefining what that person is about. And God says to Abram, you will now be called Abraham, i.e. the father of many. And he's saying to Abraham, I am going to change your identity so that you recognize my promise. You will be a father of many nations. You won't have to adopt a son. You're not going to rely upon Ishmael, your son with Hagar, though I'll bless him because he is your son. I'm going to give you another son. And we find that Isaac, God laughs, will be the son that comes and is the great blessing to Abraham and Sarah, but we will be the one through whom the promises of God are delivered. Sarah's name is changed and God addresses her and says that she will be the mother essentially of nations and particularly of kings. A vast number of people of royal descent will come from her and he redefines her purpose by changing her name. And then he does perhaps the most noticeable thing in this passage. He puts in place a sign of his promise to commit to Abraham, but much more a sign of Abraham's commitment to God. He calls upon Abraham to be circumcised and to have every male in his household, whether slave or free, circumcised also as a sign of their commitment to God, as God in chapter 15 made a sign of his commitment to Abraham by um, covenanting, by walking through the pieces of those slaughtered animals and saying he promises on the basis of his own name that he will stick by Abraham and deliver these promises. And so we find in uh, this change of the relationship between Abraham and Sarah and God, we find an identity shift. Their whole identity is now bound up in the promises of God. And we also find that something costly is expected of Abraham. He's expected to get circumcised along with all the males in his household. And this is where we begin to see how our commitment to God is worked out, is experienced, expressed. It's in obedience. It sounds simple, doesn't it? Just obey God and that will be enough. And yet we see that this involves an identity shift, an identity change and something costly given by us 
to God. What we find in the New Testament is exactly that same message delivered by Jesus. He says to each one of us that we are now um, his disciples. We belong to him. And he says to his disciples, if you're going to follow after my way, you need to forsake everything else in this life, no matter how precious. It's going to be costly to follow me, to be known as one of my people. And we find um, in the experience of the early church, the church in Antioch is where people begin to call the followers of Jesus Christians, i.e. the followers of Christ. And so it is with Abraham and Sarah, we find an identity change. We are connected to our God and we find that something costly is given by us to him, our whole lives. That's the symbolism of circumcision. It is this idea that you are literally cut off from the rest of the world and separated out for God and for his glory. So Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you've got to be like me. You've got to look like me and sound like me. You must die my death. You take up your cross every day. You, you die to the old way of life and you take up a new way of living and follow me. It's a costly thing. He says to his disciples, you ought to count that cost before you follow me. Because this is not something you can pick up and put down as and when you fancy. This is a commitment for the rest of your lives. And so we find it is with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham goes forward on the basis of faith, but he does actually have to go and obey God. And we find he does. He is circumcised, which for an older man in his 90s must have been quite a difficult experience for all the men in his household. And yet, as an act of faith, they do so, knowing that God is promising uh, to stand by them even though it seems impossible that he will deliver them uh, this son and this promise. We find Abraham laughs, actually, in verse 17 through to 27. God commits these things to him, and Abraham falls on his face before God in reverence, but laughs almost in, in complete disbelief. How can this be so? Is it possible that I might have a son in my old age? And you get the idea he'd given up all hope. And now there's a glimmer of hope coming. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And he laughs. And so we find God says that his son will be called Isaac. God laughs. Abraham says, surely you mean Ishmael. Surely it would make more sense for Ishmael to be the son and heir because he, he's already here, as it were. And yet God says, no, it will be my promise delivered to you. Trust in me. And so Abraham does as God says, despite the fact it makes no sense. You've already got a son. Why, why go through all the, the anguish of, of waiting and anticipating the arrival of a child when you and your wife are way beyond the age of having children? And despite the cost to himself, Abraham commits to God and his way. What we find here is an expression of what we see revealed in the rest of, uh, of Scripture. Into the New Testament, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says it is to love the Lord your God with all your um, heart and, and soul and mind and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. We find these are commandments given by God to his people to live in light of. And as we seek as a Christian people to commit to Christ, we find that these 
um, commandments that we are to live our lives by make no sense to the world. To love a God you can't see. To love a God that seems to preside over a world that is full of suffering and death despite the fact he claims to be a God of love. To love and serve a God who doesn't heal you of your sicknesses all the time. Who doesn't see your loved ones released from prison when they've been imprisoned unfairly as Christians have all over the world and so on. It seems like a nonsense to go on believing this. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Our world says you look after number one first and then you look after your neighbor. You don't love your neighbor more than you would take care of your own needs. That's crazy. It's nonsense. It's costly. It's laughable. And yet we find through the Old Testament into the New this repeated refrain to live your life committed to God and therefore obedient to his commands. Commands like these. They're costly. And yet there's an expectation that we will obey. And so as we look at our commitment to Christ as individual Christians, are we counting the cost? And are we considering the commitment that Christ has made to us in dying to have us and then considering our commitment to follow in his way, to go as he would have us go in light of this whole new identity he has given us, even though the life he calls us to live is costly and looks foolish to the world around us, sometimes, if we're honest, feels foolish to us. It makes no sense to our world to gather in church Sunday by Sunday to stand and sing and and pray and hear God's word and to listen to a book written thousands of years ago and, and to expect our lives to be changed and transformed by what we read and by the spirit of God and yet we're called to commit to the church we're told in Hebrews that we're expected to meet together we shouldn't neglect that as some do this is important we can't just be on our own with a bible and expect to do well as Christian men and women We commit to Christ and we commit to his church. We're told again and again in the pages of the New Testament by Jesus and James and John and Paul to to love our brothers and sisters and to sacrifice for them and to give up our own comforts in order that they might be blessed beyond measure. We're told to commit in light of the promises of God that have been given to us that we have all we need in Christ so we can give away anything, everything for the sake of other people, because we have all we need in Jesus. And so we don't need to fear anything. We can place ourselves in harm's way if necessary, because in the end, we are secure in Christ and the life we lead now is only a part of the life that we will have in Christ for all eternity. And so we've seen Christian brothers and sisters of ours down through the centuries willingly giving up their lives for the sake of others, for the sake of uh, sharing the good news, the hope of salvation, because it would be worth it for the building up of the church, for the praising of Christ's name, and for the blessing of other men and women who are as yet sinners, but one day might be saved and become saints. It seems crazy to our world. It is incredibly costly and yet our commitment to Christ is expressed in this kind of obedience. We can sometimes confuse commitment to involvement 
I belong to a church. I belong to a community, to a family, to a belief, to a religion, whatever it might be. But as we've already thought, involvement withers away when the going gets tough. Commitment only stiffens our resolve as times are hard and the going becomes more and more difficult. And as we commit to Christ, so we avail ourselves more and more, as we've already thought, of his faithfulness. We depend upon him more. We appeal to him more. We are fulfilled and satisfied and supplied by him more, so that in the end, we lack nothing. We are called to be committed to Christ and to his church. And so I want to challenge you today. Are you committed to Christ and his church? It is the only means of fulfillment for any human being. The only means of satisfaction. The only means of truly feeling at home, regardless of where we are and how hard the times might be that we're living in. Are we committed to depending upon him, to considering the promises of God daily so that we might be strengthened by our dependence upon him, his faithfulness to us, so that our faithfulness to him grows? Are we committed to his church, depending on one another, to building one another up, to growing together as a fellowship? Are we committed in the expectation that God will stay forever committed to us. He says to Abraham that he will never leave, never fail in his commitment, will uphold, will sustain. And in the end, Jesus comes millennia after Abraham goes to his grave as a sign of God's complete faithfulness, trustworthiness, and reliability. So let us commit to Christ, our God and Savior, for he has committed to each one of us. Amen. And now as we come to the end of our time of worship and prepare to go out into the coming week, I pray that you would go knowing the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.